Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. So this is a special and very personal show for me. I sat down recently and had a heart to heart with my wife, Sarah, about our cancer journey over the past two plus years. I think, and I hope that this episode will be helpful for couples, especially those facing a recent diagnosis. Sarah is my high school sweetheart. We started dating in 1993, which our kids refer to as the 19s. We've been married since 2002. She is an absolutely amazing person and caregiver, and she has supported me and believed in me and us every step of the way. Today is May 12th. We've lost track of the days. It's quarantine. It is May 12th. It is Monday. No. It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday, May 12th, 2020. And... We're going to talk about what life has been like for the past two years as we've been going through cancer. And both of us are already starting to cry, which is probably not a, the best sign, but um, hopefully we make it through. Um, a little How much emotional. do the listeners want to listen to sniffling for the next half hour? I think sniffling's okay. So thank you, Sarah, for being here. I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, um, so we kind of shatter a lot of stereotypes in our relationship. I'm the verbal processor and communicator. I like to talk about stuff. Sarah generally, Sarah generally keeps things in more, not necessarily needing to talk things out. She's, um, more like the strong and silent type. Um, but I think we can get her to go over some of these, some of the memories from the past two years and, and what we've been through. Um, I was diagnosed, just to recap, I was diagnosed in March of 2018 with state, well, well, what we thought at the time was stage three colon cancer, but we learned quickly after that, that I was actually stage four. Uh, my colon cancer had metastasized to my liver. So it's been a little over two years. So let's just dive in. Let's start. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, before diagnosis, actually, um, kind of the winter Leading up to that early 2018, I was just super tired and not sure what was going on with my health, but just feeling really fatigued. That was really the only symptom I had. But what do you remember about before diagnosis? I don't really remember anything until the time we were skiing when um, I took Trevor down a what I thought was going to be a nice blue trail skiing, and he just learned how to ski a few years ago. And... Uh, it turned out to be like a mogul trail and he doesn't do bumps. And I remember him saying, I'm going to walk back up. And I was like, well, I'm not walking back up. I'm going to keep going. So I'll see you at the bottom. So I'm waiting at the bottom and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm thinking, what happened? <laughs> Maybe he got lost in the woods. Uh, and he finally came out 
about 10, 15 minutes later. And I said, where were you? And he said, well, I had some trouble hiking back up. And that's about all I remember thinking, what is the matter with you? Yeah. So, um, that day was, that was a Friday that March end, but I had been really struggling with fatigue for a while before that. Um, probably didn't talk about too much about it, but just really intense fatigue to the point where I'd get up, start to go about my day and then have to like, basically the girls would go off to school. You'd go off to work and I would basically like crash back into bed and need to sleep some more. And it was, um, so it was like debilitating fatigue. Now, uh, to circle back our listeners, Sarah and I have been together for 20, wow, 27 years. So we started dating in high school when I was 16, she was just about to turn 16. And so I'm 43 now. She's 42, and I was diagnosed two years ago when I was 41. And our two children are Sage and Elsie. They're 14 and 12, uh, our two daughters. And so when we talk about <laughs> what we've gone through, it like that's the basis is that we've known each other since we were kids, and we've been really best friends since that time. So everything that we talk about, there's this very long relationship that, you know, it's almost like when you get that when you know someone that much and when you've been with a person that long, it's almost like they're part of you or like an extension of yourself. Like you almost lose track that there's another person there with you. Sometimes it can just feel like you're this one kind of entity going through life. So that ski day, um, that was actually, wow, kind of losing track. But in any case I had to, ha basically I, I finally talked to my primary care doctor and I said, you know, I need to get this checked out. So she had me come and do blood work. And like most guys, I had not, I was, you know, a healthy 41 year old, pretty much. Um, you know, I had some, never had the perfect diet, but ate pretty well. Um, was always athletic, um, exercised a lot. Like I would, we heat with wood in our house and I would carry, I always talk about being able to carry uh, these large bins, like 80 to hundred pounds each of the wood from the barn down to our house. And I would do that for like hours at a time and not have any problem. But over the course of that, I guess, looking back on it, probably maybe a year leading up to my diagnosis, my physical capabilities just kind of got less and less. So when I had my blood work done, that was when we got a call from my primary care doctor and it was a Friday night. It was that Friday night, wasn't it, when we went skiing? On the way home from the ski trip. Right. It was that Friday night that the doctor um, called and she said, hey, like, call me. I know it's a weekend. It's Friday night, but I need to talk to you about your blood tests. I need to talk to you about your blood results. I didn't assume it meant anything. I, I just assumed there was maybe a little something going on, but I did not imagine cancer. Right. Um, so I called her back and she said, Trevor, you, you basically have like no iron in your blood. You're, you're iron deficient anemic. Um, you don't need a blood transfusion, but you're kind of trending in that direction where you're very, your, your, um, anemia is pretty severe. Like we need to figure out, she said, have you been losing any blood lately? Have you noticed any blood or blood loss? And I said, no, absolutely not. She said, well, usually if an otherwise healthy male is losing, you know, is anemic like this, it tends to indicate blood loss probably in your gastrointestinal tract somewhere. So have you noticed any blood in your stool? I said, no. And she said, well, we need to get you in for a colonoscopy as soon as possible. And the following week I got in for the colonoscopy and that I was still wasn't imagining anything like 
Yeah, I mean, I had, and I had looked online, like typed in anemia. Bad idea. Well, right, but but I but honestly, I didn't even see like I was thinking hemorrhoids or maybe even so I don't know polyps, something in my gastrointestinal tract, maybe even celiac, that would account for anemia. And obviously, I think I saw like, cancer on there, but that was so far out of my thinking. But then we went for the colonoscopy, and that was the day that changed everything. I remember sitting in the waiting room. I was doing some schoolwork. I had to be the driver for the colonoscopy. So I remember sitting in the in the waiting room just doing some paperwork and thinking. I just was so nonchalant about everything. I just assumed it was going to come back as something minor. Like just never even crossed my mind. Right. And the doctor who did it. Same thing. He like looked at me when I came in. He's like, oh, I'm sure we'll find something to explain this. Like, no worries. He was very upbeat. And then afterward, of course, when I came out of the drug haze, I had the twilight meds. So I wasn't really conscious or understanding what was going on during the procedure. But after I came to, then, I mean, what do you recall? Because it's kind of hazy for me. But eventually, we just ended up in the doctor's office. Yeah, he asked us to come in the office, and I that was the moment that I was like, something is not right, because his face just looked right. stunned. Right. And he said something, from what I recall, he said something along the lines of, you know, here's the report, and, you know, we we did find a, you do have a large mass in your ascending colon. which I think he said a large tumor. I think, right. Well, I think he said mass first, and then he said tumor, and then he said we're going to need to refer you to a surgical oncologist and an oncology team and this and that. But he didn't come right out and say you have no. cancer. <laughs> you did. You right. said, so does that mean I was like, are you telling I have me, cancer? Are you telling me that I have cancer? And they're very cautious because until they get the pathology report back, they don't want to tell people 100%. But basically, he looked at us and was like, you know, in, until the pathology report comes back, I can't say for certain. But I'm yes, we're pretty sure that you have you have cancer. You have colon cancer. And, um, yeah, speechless. Kind of just looked at each um, other. We sat in the car for half hour. I was supposed to be the driver. Yeah, right. (laughs) And I, there was no way I was driving, at least for a while. So we sat there and just... And we weren't even really crying at that point. It was just more of stunned, just stunned. And what do we do? Again, I always say it's like this asteroid has hit our life. And and I didn't have, you know, in my family, I'd had grandparents My on my dad's side. Uh, both grandparents had colorectal cancer, but not until late in life, you know, 70s. Maybe my grandfather, maybe his late 60s, but certainly nothing around 40 years old that would indicate you know, we didn't have this family tree that had a bunch of cancer popping up at early ages. So I had always planned on getting a colonoscopy, you know, maybe even a bit earlier, maybe at 45, which is the standard now, but it was 50 at the time. And I thought maybe I would do that then because my dad did have colonoscopy in his fifties and then into his sixties. And he had had some polyps removed, but it just was it was not anywhere on my radar screen that I had to worry about colon cancer at age 41. That was, that was not part of at all part of our universe. I I think, hmm. Both of us were just thinking about the girls. Yep. Yeah, so young, like, 
at the time they were 12 and 10. And how do you go back and like, how do you even begin this conversation? And how do you tell them? And when do we tell them? And what does that look like? What's the message we want to share? What do they need to know? What do they deserve to know? How do you make it positive and hopeful yet be realistic so that right and you're and when you're asking all those questions in your head when you're going through your own shock like we were literally we were in you know a a state of shock uh, on our on our own so then you gotta i mean obviously you take care of your children and you need to communicate with them and figure out how to navigate that but you're also just in this place of feeling numb and shocked and scared like it was scary like to hear this like you have this Mine was a pretty big tumor. It was like nine centimeter tumor. And 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 I remember asking him, like, how, so it, has it spread? Like, what stage am I? And he said, well, you need to go, you're going to need to get imaging to determine if it's metastasized to other parts of your body. I mean, it's terrifying. You know, and, and mostly not, you know, for me, not for me as the person with it. Like, yeah, of course, I'm scared for myself, but mostly for the kids, for Sarah and the kids. Like, oh, my God, like. I have cancer. I have this large tumor in my colon. Like, how do I get through? How do I survive this? And, and that day after we sat there for a while and finally got to like start moving on, I mean, we, we would, and this started a period of months where we would barely eat or drink. Like it was hard to, it was hard to go through the normal functioning of life. Like you feel so sick, um, with worry and with stress. And, um, I remember trying to like, yeah, just trying to like put food in our bodies for quite a while was hard. Yeah, it's just that floating sensation of going about the motions of life and hoping that you're doing a pretty good job. And there was masking no, right. what's happening inside. And there's no template for it. Like we didn't have like this template or guide to be like, this is how you respond to this type of life threatening <laughs> news. And you just want I remember wanting answers quickly. I wanted to know, like, what's the stage? When when do we go for surgery? When does chemo start? Like, what ha- is happening? Oh my it God. all just takes so long. It's overwhelming from the, yeah, from day one. It's it's overwhelming because you don't know anything, and then you have to know everything. But everyone, but all of a sudden, you're in this medical like you're in this you're in the shoot and all of a sudden people are telling you like well here's what's happening and here are your options and here here's what we need to do and it's just and meanwhile you're trying to parent and cope and everything it's just it's overwhelm from the get-go which of course it would be right so the next kind of milestone was you know i i called i i remember texting Tara, our amazing primary care physician, she has been just amazing through this whole thing from from start to finish. She is absolutely the best primary care physician we could ask for. And I remember texting her being like, got a tumor, time to deal with this. (laughs) And she's like, she was like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Like, but we're on it. Okay, here we go. And so she, you know, immediately got me set up to get us. CT scan. So CT, the CT scan was the first diagnostic piece after the colonoscopy to determine, can we see any other tumors or evidence of cancer in the rest of your body? So that was, you know, 
I mean, it was within like a couple days that we got in for that CT and Sarah can, you can talk a little bit about when we were waiting for that call to come back. That was kind of an, we've had so many times in the past two years where we're waiting for results, right? (laughs) Just waiting for scan results, waiting for test results. And that was like our introduction to that anxiety of waiting to hear what things were going to be like. So we were actually shopping. We had to go grocery shopping. I remember being in Hannaford and the phone rang and the cell reception in that area is not great. And I remember you walking and trying to find a spot where you could hear. And we ended up near the English muffins. And I remember just sort of leaning on the shelf, looking at the English muffins, thinking, this is so strange. <laughs> right. We're like picking out uh, foods for the kids. And, <laughs> and at that point, Dr. Pelletier said that the scans didn't show any metastasis. So that was like huge good news. Like it appears that you just have the tumor in the colon and your liver and your lungs look clear, which is those are the two spots that you know, with colon cancer, those are the two organs that it tends to metastasize to first, um, the liver and the lungs. So at that point we were thinking, okay, so this is basically, I'm a stage three patient. I need to have my colon tumor removed. And depending on the results of that, I might need chemotherapy, but it looks like I'm in good shape, you know, relative to stage four. You know, one of the hard things is that information overload. Like, of course, I'm going to go online like right away. You know, you the, the first day I'm diagnosed, you go online, you look at it, you're like, you know, colorectal cancer. Five, and, the, and of course, on the first page, the thing that comes up is five-year survival rates and, and you know, some just statistics. And you'll, you'll hear Grace, the dog, uh, barking in the background. Um, we're going to maybe text one of our kids to bring her in. This is life at our house right now. Um, so the statistics... You know, I was looking at stage one, like amazingly good, two, very good, three, still very good. And then once you get to stage four with colorectal cancer, the, you know, the, the five-year overall survival rate is still below somewhere between 10 and 15%. It's not good. It's really not good. Um, and, and scary. And, and, you know, of course you're your own statistic and these are just guides and we all know this like intellectually, but you're still going to look at it. You're still going to go on Google and, and see what the information is out there. So, you know, hearing that hopefully I was stage three was a really good thing. And then, and then the next thing was surgery. So we met with a couple surgeons and picked out, we picked this amazing surgeon right here in Maine and we decided to, you know, go ahead. So within a couple of weeks, I was already lined up for colon surgery. So before we got to surgery, obviously we had to, we did have that conversation with the kids. Um, did we have that, that? Were we in a place to have that the first day or maybe it was the second day? after diagnosis i can't even remember yeah it might have been didn't the second do it day. that night right because i remember thinking they're Lots gonna know crying. something's wrong <laughs> all the crying and but i think your dad took them out for dinner or something and uh and we waited a day yeah so that next day we just said we you know sarah and i we you and i circled and said well, let's just you know be straightforward as we can tell them what we know and tell them what the plan was. So we sat down at the kitchen table and you did most of the talking. Yeah, I said, <laughs> you know what I said? So we found out that I have a tumor in my large intestine and it's cancer. 
and we have a plan to go in and remove it. The funny thing about kids is you're never quite sure what their prior knowledge is. It's hard to know. You know, we didn't have anybody in our family close to us who had had cancer or who had died of cancer. You know, we had a few friends, but distant friends, acquaintances, really. And so it's hard to know for your kids if if they hear that word cancer and they think, my dad's going to die, or if they're hearing it. Yeah, and I think we, we I think we asked them questions. You know, we did ask them, you know, what do you under, what do you know about it? And we tried to explain. Yeah, because I don't think they didn't have a lot, right? Which actually made things a little bit easier in some ways because they didn't come in with any kind of notion that this was really really bad. So they were very trusting of the information we would give them. Right. Yeah. So I think we just you know let them ask questions, but told them. I need to have a surgery and hopefully after surgery, I'll be, um, get back to my health. And that's what we knew at the time. And then, and then I went in for, then I had my colon surgery, which was successful. You know, she, the surgeon was able to remove the section of my large intestine with the tumor and then reconnect my intestines so that I didn't need a colostomy. Um, basically just, it was a reconnection. It was a, it was a removal of the cancerous area and then reconnecting me and then Uh, he makes it sound so easy i remember (laughs) (laughs) it not quite like that (laughs) right but he did really well i mean i remember walking the halls of the hospital pretty quickly and them saying you know in order to go home you have to eat and you have to go to the bathroom (laughs) and he seemed to do fine with the eating part the bathrooming took a little longer I never, I never thought in my life I'd be so excited about poop. <laughs> yeah, so we, it was like um, when you have that kind of surgery, it takes a while for your bowels to wake back up. And mine were borderline. Like the medical staff were like, okay, like we're trying to get these bowels going. Like your body needs to just come back on. Basically what it does, it shocks your, it shocks your system. So your intestines are shocked. Everything shuts down. And then they need to learn to start again. And they were concerned that mine was taking a little long, but finally, you know, finally the, it, it did start to work. But wow, that was a really uncomfortable. Huh, long few days. Long few days. And just nausea, just making it from, that was my first introduction to my, the biggest problem for me over the past two years has been nausea, whether it be related to the physical health or my mental health. Nausea has been my enemy (laughs) for a lot of the past two years, man. And you know, that was like the crash course on, I'd never really, I had never had trouble with nausea before in my life. Like I could always eat anything and like never had stomach problems, but man, that was like just trying to get by minute to minute and looking over at Sarah and she'd be looking at me and I mean, what a helpless feeling for her. Like it was bad enough for me to go through the nausea, but for her to see me like that was, that was kind of the beginning of, of when it gets tough as a couple, because all of a sudden I'm a patient and she's a caregiver, and these are not roles that we wanted or prepared or were prepared for. I remember bringing you home from the hospital that first time. Felt like, like almost like having a baby in the car. You know, like I wanted to be careful of the <laughs> potholes and 
my driving and then trying to get you in the house and thank you <laughs> and the girls were they've always just been so incredibly good with all this and just and so proud of them <laughs> you know as much as i felt shame about how i've <laughs> dealt with it sometimes my pride for how you have coped with this and how they have coped with this is can't even really put into words i'm just incredibly proud of you all and thankful um so got home started to recover from surgery and everything went pretty well for a couple weeks and then i got sick again i started getting a really bad fever and come and go and turns out i had a infection brewing down by my surgery site and had to go get a drain put in um for you know that so i had a procedure where they insert a drain into that area and then you have to drain out the infected area and fortunately it was successful but that was really when i i think the mental health piece the emotional piece started to really creep in terms of anxiety and yeah i remember you just being so worried from that moment on every little feeling yeah in the next surgeries and Every little feeling that you had, just, I think you worried so much that it was another infection or something bad, and there was just a lot of health anxiety that crept up from there. Huge health anxiety, like, I think just losing faith in my body, like, I, you know, kind of all the confidence that I had had about my health and my body just eroded, and um, that health anxiety, you know, I've and I've had a baseline problem with anxiety going before this, like... A lot of my adult life, I've wrestled with anxiety from time to time, you know, and a couple times it was debilitating before cancer, but I've always been able to work through that and, you know, be successful in my roles as a husband and dad and, and a professional. And, but it was there, but, but like millions of others, you know, like I definitely am not alone in having an anxiety issue, but there was that baseline there before cancer. And then I think when I got cancer and then I got the infection and, and everything was just kind of overwhelming. I think that's when the anxiety really started to go into overdrive. But still at the time, we were very optimistic about the prognosis. And one lymph node had cancer in it out of the lymph nodes that were taken during my surgery. So the recommendation for me was to do three months of Kpox, which is a type of chemotherapy uh, specific to colorectal cancer. And I went ahead and did that. That was um, the summer of 2018. So I had a port placed in, which is a, a device that is implanted in your chest that allows chemotherapy to be accessed through a, through a central line uh, rather than IV. Because one of the drugs in Kpox is oxaliplatin, which is a very harsh drug, um, best taken through a port. Um, it also comes with some really nasty side effects, that all of which hit me very hard. The oxaliplatin hit, hit me really, really hard. Like I would get my infusion of the chemo and my eyesight would like bounce around for several hours. And the uh, cold sensitivity was really, really bad. So you'd take the drug and then anything you touched that was cold made it feel like there was like electrical shocks going through your body. And if any drink that was not warm, like even room temperature water felt like I was drinking shards of glass. Um, 
And good thing it was summer in Maine. Right. I mean, it was the timing was good. Um, but I was a I was a mess. I was an absolute mess when chemo started emotionally and then physically as well. I think what I really remember from that summer is laying in bed. Laying in bed all the time, obsessively researching cancer and reading about it, um, disconnecting from you and the kids. And I I found myself physically and emotionally broken for the first time, you know, really like that ever. And, and then on top of it was the emasculation part and the shame part because all of a sudden I'm just in bed all the time. And I really wasn't able to even separate what was physical and mental health at that point. And you were taking care of the household and the kids. And my dad was coming over and mowing the lawn and taking out the trash. And like all the roles that I cherished were exploded, (laughs) pretty much gone. So, so that sense of shame and embarrassment really started to set in on top of the anxiety and depression that I was going through. And, and this reality of facing my own mortality, the possibility of leaving you and the girls at such a young age, it all just avalanched on me. And then I felt like, wow, I'm not only did I get cancer at 41, I am not handling it well at all. Like I'm failing at how I should be dealing with this. What are you, what are some of the things that you remember about that summer and fall I honestly don't remember that much. It was such a blur of just trying to keep everything afloat. I do remember trying to figure out, like, is this mental? Is this physical? Where's the line? How do I help? You know, trying to figure out if I should be nurturing and supportive and like soft about it or like come on i need you i can't do all of this alone i mean i'm a teacher so summers are usually saved for the good stuff that's when i recharge and get ready for the next year and spend fun time and i just remember i didn't feel like we got to do anything with our friends because I just didn't feel like anybody could really understand. I just felt really isolated, kind of alone. I'm sorry that I, I'm sorry that I was broken and I'm sorry that we had to go through that. I know I just, and I'm not, you know, I've come to terms with that and accepted that that was part of what had to happen. But you know, for me personally, um, and I'm, you know, I still wrestle with the guilt of that and the shame of that for sure. But I think I've, I think I've come to a point of mostly forgiving myself for you have to that time. I mean, we learned a lot, and I feel like all of this has just been part of the journey and part of your journey in order to be able to help others and be compassionate. And <sighs> I think we've learned a lot about each other and ourselves and as painful as it is to think about and to have gone through it's it's just a piece it's a small piece oh thank you thank you i always say you know i'm going on podcasts now and and talking to others about our journey 
And I always say, I can never thank you enough for carrying us. You carried all of us for quite a while. And that has an impact. And, you know, people are like, well, you know, you'd do the same. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that I would, but I didn't. Like, you're, and I hope I never have to, <laughs> but you did. And you carried this family and you carried me when I was broken and, and, and when I was thinking that I was never going to recover from that. Because that's the, you know, the whole genesis of man up to cancer is is because of that time when, when I thought I'm never gonna recover. There's no way out. And I'm not talking about the cancer. I'm talking about I'm never gonna recover from being broken and not being and and being withdrawn from my family. And you I have, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to you. And you. You did lots of your own work, too. Yeah. Whew, this is tough stuff here. <laughs> okay. So, so that really was the... Oh, so, okay, we should provide the background that as this, you know, depression, anxiety, this brokenness is happening, that was all because I went through this chemo, and then right after chemo... We sat down with our oncologist and I did my first scans, my MRI and my CT after chemo. And my oncologist sat us down and we're thinking, all right, here's the part where you're cancer free and you're going to move on with your life. You know, I remember him when we, when I was, when we thought I was stage three, I remember him saying like, this is basically just going to be like a, a several, like several months, but it'll be months of your life. And then you'll, you'll, it'll be like a blur eventually it'll just be a memory. And unfortunately for me, I did have a metastasis. I had a, uh, so we sat down with the oncologist and he said, there's a spot on the scans on your liver. Um, there's a, looks like a, a lesion, but I'm not sure if it's cancer. It does it looking back at your prior scans before chemotherapy, there was this spot there. They just didn't see it at the time because it was very small and it has grown a little bit. But, but when we first met with him, there was still hope that maybe this was a, a, a tangle of blood vessels or, um, a cyst or some other type of growth. And, and we had a couple opinions from radiologists on this particular spot in my liver. And the consensus at the time, this was September of 2018 was that, uh, this was not cancer, which. But they didn't agree on what they thought it was either. So that wasn't very. Right. Hopeful. One team thought it was a cyst. Another team thought it was a hemangioma, which is blood vessels. I, in my, you know, as I was going through this despair and everything else, I just had an intuition. I'm like, there, I, this must be a metastasis. Like this has to be cancer. What else? Why else would I have this, you know, growth in my liver that's growing right now? And I had learned enough about at that point too much, unfortunately, that it was likely uh, cancer. And I'm not one to believe that I have the capability of manifesting such things. I know there are people out there who believe that, but I'm I'm of the belief that if I walk into a garden and there's weeds, just because I'm chanting, there's no weeds, doesn't mean they aren't there. So <laughs> there was a tumor in my liver. And so three you know, a couple months after we thought that it wasn't, my blood work showed that I was, that I had can- active cancer. Another scan showed that this tumor in my liver had rapidly grown in size. It was like three and a half centimeters, clearly a metastasis. So I was a stage four colorectal cancer patient at that point. And time for another surgery. Right. 
Um, and, and again, the good news. So a lot, you know, I don't want to sound negative on any of this stuff. Like for having stage four colorectal cancer, I actually got it or caught it early. I didn't have advanced disease. I only had one metastasis in my liver. I was eligible for surgery. There's so many people that I've met along the way who are stage four CRC and never are eligible for surgery, like have advanced disease throughout their liver, in their lungs, in their bones. Like it's, so I was in a, I've always been in a very good place for attacking this from the stage four perspective. We found an amazing liver surgeon, surgical oncologist here in Maine. And again, a surgeon who could work anywhere in the world, but just chooses to be here because of quality of life. And she performed a liver surgery on me. And this was November, 2018, very difficult surgery. The tumor was high up in my liver. So basically they had to, she and another surgeon basically had to open me up. Um, <laughs> sorry for TMI, but detach my liver, roll it over, take out the tu- the spot, the area with the tumor in it, and then put my liver back inside me. <laughs> um, and they did an amazing job. It was a successful. I recovered pretty well from that surgery, but my mental health was still absolutely crap. And going in, so November, December of 2018 were, that was like the bottom of everything. That was the low point in this whole two years. That was the low point getting to the point where I was just absent and I had to go in and have another drain put in. Didn't necessarily have an infection, but I had an area of fluid and I just wasn't feeling well. So I had, I had another drain. And at that point I was saying things to Sarah, like, like, you just need to leave me like, (laughs) hold on. Um, I was saying like, you just need to take the girls and go somewhere or, or I need to go away. Like I was like, I just need to maybe go up to your, your parents camp and live by myself because I am not, I'm not being a good husband. I'm not being a good dad. I'm, I'm a broken person. Like I was, I was in a debilitating, I still had some self-awareness to know that I was in a debilitating depression and anxiety place, but, but that's how bad it got. And finally our story started to turn around and this now gets us into the area where we start talking about going from that broken place to one of, wow. I mean, I want to say redemption, right? Like for me personally, that's how I look at it. You know, going through that broken place and then finding a way to move on. And see, the thing is is that I had to grieve. What I really was doing was grieving. It was grieving the loss of the man that I was and the life that we had before I got cancer because I loved that person and that life and to, to realize that nothing was ever going to be the same and, and that I was never going to be the same. Like I had, I had to go through that brokenness and let that person go. I had to grieve that. And that's, I think that's what was happening. But finally, what forced me to start turning it around was again, my family. It was the girls. It was Sarah because they didn't, they didn't give up on me. I mean, any other people that could have, could have been like, okay, if this is what you need, like time to move on, it's not working. Um, but they didn't do that. And 
Sarah, you know, had to step up and, and tell me what she needed and what had to happen. So I'm going to take a second to compose myself because this is a really important juncture. <laughs> I'd like to thank our sponsor, Kleenex. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, Kleenex, if you want to sponsor us. We're <laughs> so right around Christmas time, 2018, um, in this despair, Sarah and I were laying in bed one night and she, you know, she, <laughs> she had made no bones about the fact that things had to change. Like, hey, things have to change. And I was just like, I don't know how to change them. But she said that specific night, she just basically lost her shit on me. was like, hey, you're still here. You're still fighting. We need you. Like, we need you to be part of this family. We need you to come out of this funk. And I said, I'm, I'm trying. I really am trying. I, I just, I can't cope with the idea of leaving you leaving the girls like I can't my brain is just not accepting this and I'm not dealing with it the right way like I I just think that the girls are going to that I'm going to die and the girls are going to remember me as being sick as being in the bed and or on the couch and just being this disconnected sick person and Sarah kind of gave me that look that is the look of being together for 20 plus years where she's going to say something and I'm like, just say it. Like whatever you have to say, it's okay. And she looks at me and she says, I'm not worried. They're going to remember you as sick. I'm worried. They're going to remember you as sad. And, and I think for the first time that, that was like, that was the moment that really, it's not like I snapped out of it. Like, Oh, okay. I'm good now. But that was the moment that, I was like, I, you know, I'm not a sad person. This isn't me. I don't want them to remember me as sad. I want them to remember me as a loving, joyful, generally happy dad. Because that's who you are and who you've always been, who you still are. So I said, I can't tell you that I can turn this around right away. But I can promise you that I will do everything that I can and I will take action every day to get back to living with joy no matter what happens with my cancer. Because I think at the beginning too, like, I think as a cancer patient, you think, okay, the goal here is to beat cancer and get cancer free and then start, like, then start living your life again. And I had to... I had to reframe things to be like, if I only have a year left or two years or what, five years, whatever it is that my time might be on this earth, I need to find a way to live with joy and with purpose and with in the roles that I love, even with that limited life ahead of me. Right. I remember thinking, oh, we just need some good news. We just need some good news. And that's what's going to make the difference. And it's almost like there were two different journeys going on at once. There's the cancer journey, the health side of it. And then there's the journey of our family. And and they're connected, but it wasn't the news we needed. It was the mindset change. And 100%. And that's what we had to go. You can't know that until you do it. 
you know, the only way to find that out is to go through it. That's really what Sarah gave me was that opportunity to, to change my mindset and to grow and to know that no matter what my prognosis was, I'm going to live. I'm still alive. Like, let's do this. Like, let's live. Yeah. And, and it wasn't overnight. Nope. It took work <laughs> and time. You know, you got to heal from grief too. And I started to, I really did start to heal from that grief of accepting. Like, this is okay. This is what we're facing. We all have. Yeah. So really early 2000, so into that new year. We didn't get good news. <laughs> yeah. We, for a while. We didn't get good news, but I did stay true to my promise every day. Yep. I would do something. So the tools that I used. We made the good news. Right. And the tools that I use personally to try to climb out of that hole was reaching out. Again, this is the genesis of Man Up to Cancer is that I, I went from a place of isolation and withdrawal to saying, I need help. I don't know how to do this on my own, but I know that I need help and I know that I can't stay in this place. So I started group counseling. Thank you to the Dempsey Center here in Maine, Patrick Dempsey, all the people at the Dempsey Center for providing free counseling, one-on-one counseling, group counseling. I went and started doing all of that. And other things at the Dempsey Center. And then online, reaching out to people online. Not not so much anymore for, yes, I did want to learn about the science of it, but finding people online that I could connect with on an emotional level. And then exercise. So walking every day. Like I starting out with each one of my surgeries, I'd walk a hall. Then I'd walk two halls. Then walk ten halls. And then get home. Walk out back. Walk with the dog. Just walking, walking, walking. Moving my body then riding a stationary bike, getting in the pool, doing what I could physically, starting to really do that in that early part of that year and then continuing with it. And also just faking it until I, you know, fake it until you make it a little bit. You know, like I was still struggling with the mental health piece, but I was going to put myself through the paces, whatever I needed to do to make it feel like that I was getting there. And then also medications, like getting the right medications on board. I had gone on two or three different medications during that prior year, that first year to try to deal with my mental health. And I think a lot of that was good intention, but wasn't really working. And, and I'm not anti-medication. In fact, I, I still am on a low dose of an anti-anxiety, antidepressant, which I feel really good about. But at the time I was on some things that I, looking back, set me up to feel even worse. And so dealing with the, the medication piece of it is huge too. And people don't often talk about that. Because it's, that's another like taboo. Like we're not going to talk about mental health meds, but that was a piece of it too. So all of this, you know, as I just started to use the tools, things started getting better. And meanwhile, we did get, <laughs> we did continue to get bad, bad, you know, tough news on the cancer side. So I had the liver surgery. Um, unfortunately, then I had a recurrence. I had a new tumor on the other side of my liver. And then they asked us to make these decisions like, do you want to do another surgery? Do you want to? Do you want to wait? Do you want to try chemo again? Do you want to do immunotherapy now? And I remember thinking like, how the hell are we supposed to know <laughs> what we should do? Like I, I had always imagined that when you get cancer, the doctors tell you what to do and they have a specific course of action in mind and that's what they do. And man, have we learned that 
they all have different opinions and there's lots of courses of action and it's so important just to ask all the questions you can think of and educate yourself and talk to different people and because ultimately you're the ones who end up making the decision about what to do. Right. And that and can be hard. Absolutely. And they put it, you know, they'll give you a menu of options and tell you what they recommend. But when you consult with multiple doctors and get multiple opinions, which is abs to me, absolutely critical because you do learn that different doctors have different approaches and different recommendations. So what we did was try to get multiple opinions and then see if we could come to a consensus and make a decision based on lots of data and lots of information and lots of uh, perspectives. And so we made the decision that I was a, I could go for another surgery for my liver. And so I did. I went for a second liver surgery in, that was spring of 2019, and recovered from that. And then into the summer of 2019, it's like whack-a-mole. You have another tumor, <laughs> another tumor in your liver. And the funny thing is, it's like a lot of times with stage four colorectal cancer, like it, it spreads in multiple spots it starts going throughout your liver for me it's kind of just been like these single we call them mets so metastasis we call them mets uh, these single mets would just pop up in my liver and so at that point the choice was pretty clear like my cancer was being stubborn and we need to find a we need to find a systemic way to deal with it and again here's where i am a very lucky person i have lynch syndrome i have a genetic glitch which makes me susceptible to getting this colon cancer but on the flip side it turns out that having lynch syndrome for the treatment of colon cancer is actually a really good silver lining it means that i'm a really good candidate to take immunotherapy which is a, a new type of treatment basically it's um drugs that harness your own immune system to go after and kill your cancer uh, whereas chemo kind of targets all rapidly dividing cells. It's it's much harsher on the body and the success rates for chemo for stage four patients are, are just not great. Whereas immunotherapy for patients like me who have Lynch syndrome and have this specific biology, the success rate of immunotherapy is actually very promising. So it was clear to us, to all of our, all the doctors we consulted with, okay, it's time to put you on immunotherapy. So Sarah, you know, so tell me about how you saw these two tracks headed, like we were dealing with the disease continuing to come back, but you and the girls were also dealing with me as an individual starting to evolve. And it wasn't like I was going back to my old self, but it was almost like this new self was kind of emerging. This person who was facing cancer, who the core of me is always still there. Like it's still Trevor, but things are different. But what was it like for you to sort of watch as things did start to get better with my mental health? It was just a mindset shift to me. You've really started taking on a lot of the same things you've always done and, you know, playing softball in the yard with Elsie or doing little songs with Sage. And I don't think it's any huge thing. It was just like a slow return of the things that you love to do and person you are laughing with friends and hugging everybody, just reconnecting. And then I think... Having connected with so many people, you started then seeing a purpose for yourself in terms of how you could help others feel the same way. Well, and that's, and that's what I always wanted to do. I think I remember like that first week when I got diagnosed telling you like, 
because I needed to hear from someone. I needed to get on the phone like right away within the first two days with a colon cancer survivor to hear like, okay, here's someone who's gone through this. He's talking to me. Right. And I said, years from now, this is what I want to do. I want to be on the other end of the phone talking to someone who just got diagnosed and letting them know that they're not alone. Yeah. I think having that purpose and the passion to help others has been another huge piece of the mental health recovery is just seeing there's this other place, this other way you can be helpful and useful to others. Well, it's kind of ironic because I feel like I've always wanted to be a a helper, but before cancer, I wasn't, I think part of, part of my kind of malaise before cancer was that I would find little ways to help, but I never really had like that sense of purpose. So I would never want to go through cancer to find my sense of purpose, but (laughs) for a lot of people, that's what they do find. And that's, it might be a cliche, but that's my cliche. Like that's absolutely what's happened in my life. So I started immunotherapy and, and then at the same time, I was a good segue because I, I decided at that point that I was feeling good enough to start giving back. And I didn't know how, I had no idea what that was going to look like. And I'm still figuring out what it looks like. But to me, it, it was like my power, first of all, started to come back as I reasserted myself in my roles and re-engaged like you were just talking about. And then it really leveled up when I found purpose and began working around that purpose and sharing my story. So using my voice as an advocate, becoming involved with the leaders at Colentown. So Colentown is like, that was my first go-to online community uh, still my people in Colentown. It's an online group uh, for colorectal cancer patients. And I do have to thank Erica Brown, the founder, the founding mayor of Colentown for kind of plucking me out. I started engaging with that group and she kind of plucked me out and said, hey, you know, there's a place for you in advocacy. And, and basically showed me what that world could be and what it looked like. And so exciting. So I started to, I started to write about my cancer and I started to be engaged in social media around it. And then that kind of evolved to seeing the huge problem that both of us saw throughout this journey, which is men tend to withdraw and isolate when they're diagnosed and when they're going through cancer, as opposed to women who feel more comfortable reaching out and connecting, accessing resources. And we saw this everywhere we went, like at Dempsey Center, through Colentown, we saw women advocating and learning and connecting and there weren't very many men yeah you would take the yoga and meditation classes with the whole class of women yep they were happy to have you yeah i mean they embraced (laughs) me it was amazing but you know and and count just counseling in general like you'd see people coming in for counseling or you'd see people coming in for group and it's just predominantly women colon town is predominantly women patients or women who are seeking solutions for their guys who aren't online or don't want to deal with it so we started, you and I started having conversations around, like, could I be the only man who needed help? Like, right. was I the only guy going through this kind of brokenness? Of and I started not. Googling books and there's not much out there. I said, this is the thing you can help with. Right. So Sarah, so you really pushed me down this road of there's this guy thing. There's this guy problem. And that's something that you can help with that you're kind of tailor made for. Like you're a man who's just willing to put it all out there. But you're also kind of, you, you also have a guy's guy part about you too, right? So 
you were like, you need to write a book and you need to start really focusing on this man's problem. And we started using that phrase, man up to cancer. Like, hey, we need to man up to cancer. (laughs) (laughs) And we said it, you know, it still makes us laugh because it's kind of, it's funny. It's like, because we don't really mean, we don't mean just be tougher. We mean be more open to reaching out and going through it together. Find your pathway back. Find your pathway back. And so you really, you and the girls have been like the number one, you've seen the purpose that I've had around this and you've been encouraging me to do this whole thing. But then what was it like for you as you saw, like, I started to like take this man up to cancer concept and do a lot more with it than just write blog posts and possibly a book. Like it became like now I'm, I'm, I'm doing a podcast. I have a website. I like, it's become more of like a, a broader mission and something that I'm using my skills as a communicator and from my journalism days to just pour into this problem. And you've had to trust along the way that I sort of have an idea what I'm doing, which most of the time I admittedly don't, but <laughs> things seem to be going well. They do. And, and, and I guess there's this piece of me that even if it helps one person find their way back a little bit easier then it's worth it. It's all worth it because all the families deserve to have their husbands and their dads be present Yeah, because cancer is hard enough on its own and uh, all the families deserve to be united in that fight. So even if all of this helps just a small group, it's worth it and it's helping you. I think it's a it's a twofold benefit and you know, as somebody who doesn't like to talk about feelings and the idea of I think I would be the I'd take on the guy role if I got cancer. I would, you know, going to support groups and going to counseling, none of that really appeals to me as my way of coping and dealing with stress so I get it I think I'd be in the same boat but there are other ways that you can connect and that aren't quite so scary and nerve-wracking even if it's just listening to a podcast or reading a book or reading a blog post or sending a text message feeling like you belong somewhere is a really important piece of the journey 100% and I feel like that's a really good point about about man up to cancer is that it's not about helping people get back in in exactly the way that I got back like we're not saying to people like you you need to go to counseling and you need to do this but the whole point of it is that just reassuring people that they're not alone and, and giving them some giving them that reassurance and and different tools like you just said like different ways that they can get back like whether it's just listening to us talk about it or connecting privately one-on-one with someone else in our in our group or in our community getting back if you're if you're feeling broken or if you're feeling anxiety if you're feeling depression if you're feeling isolation as a man and you and you do acknowledge that you have some help or need some help that getting back doesn't have to look like a certain way you, there's no one specific way as right. a man to get yourself back there are lots of ways to do it but it's a, it's it's the acknowledgement it's accepting the fact that you could use something whether it's a fishing trip with some buddies or, or whether it's going to a yoga group with a bunch of women, like (laughs) whatever works for you, but acknowledging that, that going through it alone is not helpful. 
it, that it, it doesn't go down that road of, of just being tougher and going through cancer alone always ends up in bad places. So to circle, I guess, you know, as we're kind of finishing up here, um, well, actually, let me just ask you a little bit about your thoughts on the girls and how they have sort of evolved and what you see from them in this journey. And then especially as you think about our ups and or the down and then the up arc. Yeah, I think our kids are just like everybody else is that they each kind of tackle these kind of things in their own way. And, you know, one has been a little more quiet and stoic and looks on the outside like she's handling it a little bit better and one has been the one to break down and ask every question there is to ask and cry when she needs to cry and but they they each seem to have muddled through and I think just like us they're trying to find out how to cope along this journey and they don't have a ton of friends their age that are going through the same thing and I'm sure that's very isolating. I don't think they, you know, they don't see their friends' families dealing with the same thing. Um, but I think that being united as a family and being really open to, you know, if there's anything you want to know, if there's any questions you have, if there's worries you have, we're here and we're willing to talk about it. You know, I've had to learn to show my emotions more in front of them because I don't want them to think that it's not okay to feel however they're feeling. But I think as we've become even stronger and more connected as a family, they feel more grounded and more comfortable and safer. And it's not about like putting it out all on the table and them needing to know every little thing. I don't think from the health side of it that they necessarily do need to know every detail and what could happen and what are all the possibilities but I think that they have to know that we are together in this and that we're human and that we're all doing the best we can and what that looks like day to day it's okay so I think they're getting through it I think we all develop our own tools and sometimes you just need a little help figuring out what they are And the good news for now is that my immunotherapy appears to be working. I appear to be responding to the drugs. I, my blood work is normal. And my last scans in February showed that my tumors are basically stable. So as of this point, I have the the one tumor in my liver and then one apparently in my peritoneum near my stomach and then a bunch of little nodules in my peritoneum. And those did not change between November and February. So we had our one good news moment at that last um, scan. It was that this whole time I'd been waiting for like that one result to come back. That was like encouraging. Yeah. A good, we were, we had, we got hit with kind of like, Oh, this isn't great. This isn't great. This is bad. This is something positive, please. And so the last we were getting, you get the results of your scans and we were waiting for the results to come back. And I got the hard copies of the results and I read through it and it said stability, stable disease, which is exactly you know what we had hoped for, either stable or regressing. And so it was the first time in two years that we had had good news in terms of the disease. And so we just, you know, Sarah and I, again, we, we get these in our car. Like we, we always get the news in our car and we'd had so many car moments that were sad. True. 
And um, I just wanted even that I wanted the positive results even more for the kids. Of course. Than for myself. Like they just deserve oh. some hopeful news. That's what it's always been. And, and so earlier in, earlier that day, Sage, our 14 year old had said to me, Hey, so if you, you know, I was feeling like the scans were going to be good. And she said, if the scans are good, does that mean we can get ice cream or no, she said cake. cake. Does that mean we can get cake? <laughs> <laughs> sure. And this is how she copes with things. <laughs> it's like oh, celebration is food related, which comes from me. Um, <laughs> and so we were able to call her, call them, call both the girls and say, well, we're getting cake tonight. And we, that was really nice. And we had an ice cream cake and just celebrated because, and that's the thing. It's all about mindset. Like no one's sitting here saying we got stable scans. Like everything's fine. Yeah. Dad's, you know, going to live till he's 80 or whatever. Like it's, you get hit, you know, you get hit by the bad and you feel that. And then, so when the good comes, you have to celebrate it and absolutely. and be hopeful you know and 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 that mindset of hope definitely has come back like i absolutely am hopeful and believe that i am gonna be achieve no evidence of disease long term and live a, a long life so that i can see all the things i want to see and be part of this family for a long time but i also am very aware of my own mortality and understanding that that might not be the case yeah, which is all the more you don't right all the more reason to enjoy right. these moments that we have. All the more reason to soak it up and just be grateful. I'm grateful so much more than I ever was every day and try to stay more engaged. I mean, it's not possible to live with that type of intensity all the time. Like, I'm not going around ever present, but much more present than <laughs> I was. Getting closer. Yeah, absolutely. And... um Hopefully this immunotherapy will continue to do the job and maybe we'll have a couple more cake scans coming up. And if not, I feel like we now have gone through what we've needed to go through to not that, of course, like if my disease progresses, like none of that would be easy. It would never be easy. It's going to be, there's going to be the whole range of human emotion involved in this, but I feel like we're so much better prepared to cope with whatever life throws at us and accept be more accepting of that we're not in 100% control and that and that we need to live our lives as connected and joyfully as possible no matter what happens to any of us and no matter what the prognosis is and no matter what happens with my cancer and I thank them for that so I want to thank you Sarah for everything for this whole journey for believing in me for being my person and Thank you for being my person. I love you. All right. I think that is... Um, All the crying I can handle I think that's one Yeah, yeah that, was, <laughs> that was an emotionally intense episode. We are going to definitely lighten things up <laughs> in the future. Maybe Sarah will come back and do... I'm not that funny, so... Maybe she'll come back and do some a lighter show with me. But um, I want to thank everyone for listening and for for hearing one couple talk about what it's like. And that's not to say that... I mean, every, that's the thing. Every couple is going to go through their own stuff, but I think there's some themes in here that are going to apply to a lot of you if you're a couple and you're going through this. Take care, everyone, and uh, see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. If you want to get behind our mission, you can connect with us, subscribe to our email list, 
and subscribe to the podcast if you like where I'm headed with this. And check out our other content at manuptocancer.com. And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack doors are always open.